So I am going to be reading from Isaiah, Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So many amazing pictures already here this morning. Singing songs about a faithful God who, who meets us on the mountaintop, but also meets with us down in the valley in the midst of our struggles. Um, and this, this picture of the glory of God filling the temple. To hear the Call of the seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What an unbelievable day that will be when we stand in that presence and join that cry. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We're getting a little bit of a picture of it. I was sitting up on the deck for a little while, just enjoying the brilliance of the sun this morning. Uh, we get a little, little glimpses in our lives of this amazing glory of God. Um, and that's what we're going to be looking at today here in our, in our study at Mark, is this uh, um, unfathomable experience that John and James and Peter have there on the mountaintop with Jesus as he is revealed in all of his glory. Turn with me if you've got your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there's a bunch in the back. You're welcome to grab one of those follow along. Mark chapter 9 and verse 1. Just context of all of this, right? Jesus has just um, revealed here for the first time that the Son of Man is going to have to suffer and die um, in order for the kingdom to be established. And uh, goes through this uh, heavy calling. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. We 
we really don't have a clear idea of, of, of how that would have landed on the people of the time who had witnessed firsthand, many of them, the torture of the cross. And for them to hear these words of Jesus as their mind is all filled with the kingdom, the, the returning Messiah, the, the establishment again of David's throne there in the land of promise and all of the excitement. And, and, and then Jesus throws this image at them. Whoever is going to follow me must take up his cross. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And with that he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could ever bleach them. And there appeared to him, appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen. To him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. 
just an amazing experience for these disciples to be able to see their Lord in all of his glory, in all of his majesty. It's, a, it's an interesting account. Significant where it is placed in Mark's gospel. You'll notice he puts that little time time band on there for us, just to, to, to help us understand the, the proximity of how this event occurred to this message that Jesus had said, that, that if you try to save your life, you will lose it. Instead, that we just like, like the Son of Man, we will suffer. For those who want to follow will walk in a path of suffering. And so just six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up that mountain. And there is Jesus is transfigured, and there Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus. The disciples are amazed. As I'm reading this passage, wondering... Why Moses and Elijah? What's the significance of those two? Why did, why did Mark record that it's these two saints of old that met there with Jesus up on the mountain? Well, I think primarily he records that for us because it was actually Moses and Elijah who was up there <laughs> on the mountain with <laughs> him. But why those two? Why would God send Moses and Elijah, all of the saints that he could have sent? Like, David? Why wouldn't you send David, the, the great king of, of, of whom the, the offspring, Jesus was that, that one who would take up his throne? What about Abraham? Come on! I mean, sir, what is it about Moses and Elijah that's so significant? that they are there with Jesus in this moment that he is transfigured, that he is revealed in his glory. There's lots of speculation. Um, the text really doesn't tell us. I think it's important for us to... to uh, Mark maybe gives us a few little clues in all of this. Um but maybe that's just his own speculation as well. Uh, it wasn't revealed why these two were so important. Um, but let me do a little speculation as well. I think Moses is there. He is this image of the one who led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And Jesus here in, in this moment, as he is, as he is glorified and, and, and the, his kingdom is being ushered into this world, this kingdom that sets humanity free from slavery to sin. And so, so I think in part Moses is there because he is that image of redemption of restoration and significant for these people. I think it's also 
a part of all of this because as we read in Deuteronomy 18, I'm just going to flip over there and read that for you. Deuteronomy 18, um, through Moses, God promises, says here in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you should listen. So I think Moses' presence up there as well is, is to signify that, yes, Jesus, the Son of Man, this one that you see before him, is that prophet that God had sent that in the, in the, the, the template of Moses, that, that this is the one that you shall listen to. I think Elijah is there because as we see later on in, the, in this passage, uh, Elijah is the, the prophet who would come and prepare the way for the Lord, to prepare the way for Messiah to, to enter in and, and, and build his kingdom. We read that passage last Sunday. Marcus read that for us from Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. Describing the, the great day of the Lord, starting at verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name, son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses. The statutes and rules that I commanded him on for him, for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day that the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So it was understood that Elijah would come and he would be the one that would prepare the way, just as Isaiah had written that, that, uh, uh, that, uh, uh, The mountains will be laid low. The valleys will be raised up. Prepare the way of the Lord. I'm just going off the top of my head. That's not quite right. But anyway, um, Isaiah 53. You can look it up later if you want. It's, it's all good. Say it, Lord. Say it. There we go. <laughs> Let me go through Handel's Messiah quickly for you. Um, but yes, Elijah was the one who would be that prophet who would come and prepare the way. And so it makes sense that Elijah is up there. So the disciples, as they see these two figures. Now, another really good question. How did they know? <laughs> Maybe they had name tags on as well. <laughs> they could identify. Spiritually discerned that this was 
Moses. But this was Elijah with Jesus. And as they saw these two coming and, and speaking with Jesus, in their minds, all of these scriptures, all of these promises came ringing through that, that it would be Moses, the prophet like Moses, who would come in the last days, that, that Elijah would prepare the way for Messiah for the day of the Lord to come, that this is the coming of the kingdom, and Jesus is standing there in all of his glory, and he had just said six days earlier, some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming in all of its glory. And as they see this, they are overwhelmed. And Peter blurts out, let's make a tent. Let's make three tents. <laughs> Why did he say it? Well, Mark kind of goes on and says, explains that for us in verse 6. Because he didn't know what to say. Because <laughs> he was afraid. I have a friend whose six-year-old child came up to him one day and said, Daddy, I just realized I can have a thought without my mouth open. <laughs> there are some people that are like that. <laughs> that if there's... They don't know what to say. They will just blurt out anything altogether. There are others of us that when we don't know what to say, we keep our mouths shut. <laughs> Probably safer. But Peter was one of those guys. If, if he just had to speak something out. But why did he say we should build shelters, booths, tents in this place? Again, lots of different speculation as you read different commentaries, different people. Uh, proposed different reasons for why that was the thought that came into Peter's mind. I think part of it um, stems from Zechariah chapter 14. Again, remember, Peter is just looking at this and seeing Moses, seeing Elijah, hearing Jesus say that some will see the kingdom of God without tasting death. And, and I'm suspecting that partially Zechariah 17, verse 16, pops into his mind. This again is talking about the day of the Lord, when God comes and sets all things right. Verse 16, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem, they all shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. All of the nations will go up to Jerusalem, and it will be a regular process of celebrating the feast of booths. In Hebrew, it is Sukkoth. This is one of the seven feasts that are described for us in Leviticus chapter 23. These were the annual feasts that the people of Israel would, would go through on a regular basis. And Sukkoth, it is the very last of the seven feasts. It is uh, a celebration that happens uh, five days after the Day of Atonement. And, um, and after that time, they are called. This is one of the feasts where all of the males of 
age are to come to Jerusalem and celebrate this together. And as a part of that celebration, on the first day of the seven-day feast, they build these sukkahs, booths, tabernacles, tents. And they live in those tents for the next seven days. And this is to remember how God protected and provided for them while they were wandering in the desert, wandering in the wilderness. That God cared for all of their needs. And it is a, a grand celebration. And apparently these, these booths get wildly decorated with all kinds of beautiful flowers and and uh, tree branches and things like that. They're, they're made with tree branches up in the top so that while you're lying in your bed at night, you can look up and you can still see the stars to be able to worship God in all of his glory and all of his beauty. So this celebration is a celebration that Zachariah says all of the nations will observe on the day of the Lord, once the kingdom is established, that this will be a regular occurrence. So I think that Peter, as he sees this wonder of God's glory coming to earth, his mind is thinking, the kingdom is here. Let's get ready. Let's start celebrating temples. Let's start celebrating tabernacle. Let's start celebrating sukkah already together. He was wrong. Again. And this time, it's God the Father in heaven that rebukes him, that corrects him in all of this. As, as he says this, as he blurts this out, the glory of God coming like a cloud overwhelms them, surrounds them. And out of that cloud comes the voice of God the Father. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter was not getting it. He was not understanding. And the Lord needed him to hear this. He needed him to understand what Jesus was saying. Why was it so important for Peter and the other disciples to understand that following Jesus was following him in suffering? Because that was going to be their future. First of all, I think it was important for them to understand that the, the Messiah needed to suffer so that when it would happen, they wouldn't abandon, they wouldn't lose hope, they wouldn't abandon their faith and just run away in fear. That they would be prepared, that they would be ready, they would recognize that this was part of God's plan and they needed to hold fast in the midst of it. And when Jesus was arrested, tried, They did run in fear. They, they did lose all hope. And they almost abandoned their faith. They missed that part of why God had given. 
Jesus with Moses and Elijah there on the mountain. I think secondly, the reason that they needed to understand this was because as followers of Jesus, they were being called to a path of suffering as well. They needed to have this picture of Jesus transfigured up on the mountain to remind them of the glory of God's kingdom. So that in the midst of the valley, like we were singing in that song, that they would, they would hold fast. They would remain strong. That they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't shirk their opportunity for speaking the truth, even though they knew that speaking those words was going to bring down more persecution, more pressure on them, more suffering and pain. But as, as Paul wrote about later on to say that, that for the glory that was, a, 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 that was before them, that all of the suffering, all of the pain of this life melts away like the morning fog. So we hold fast, we walk strong, we stand firm, we continue to proclaim in the midst and in the face of suffering because of the glory that we know that is coming our way. That picture that we have of God's beauty, his magnificence, his power, that we can hold fast and thank God disciples got that part of the lesson. And they did indeed hold fast and continue to preach the word of Jesus Christ, the gospel that has carried itself all the way to us, that they faced tremendous pressure, persecution, and death, most of them. They held fast to that picture that they needed order to continue to proclaim that message of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus then goes on and tells them that, that the Son of Man will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Elijah himself has come. John the Baptist, in the form of John the Baptist, that he suffered and died. And that suffering, that path of suffering, is what the followers of Jesus can expect in their lives. That call to suffering has not changed with these 2,000 years that have transpired. For those who receive the gift of Jesus' grace, his redemptive touch in their lives, all of us are called to that path of suffering as well. See, just as Jesus' suffering led to the healing and restoration of us all, when we suffer, it offers the gift of life and hope to others. That in our pain, in our sacrifice, that there are those who will see that 
who will turn and be saved because they see Jesus in you. That is not a fun part of the message of Jesus Christ. It's not one of the selling features of being a follower of Jesus. And yet, and yet if we miss it, we miss the message of Jesus. And our, and our salvation, our gospel that we present to people is weak. It, it, it doesn't have the staying power. It doesn't have the, the strength to hold people secure as they face the struggles. We in the Western world have been blessed generations to face a, a persecution that, that was very different from what the apostles are facing. What other Christians in other places around the world are facing. It looks like that is changing. If we are going to embrace a gospel that, that ignores the fact that we will suffer, it won't have the staying power to endure the changes. It will morph and change to, to fit the culture, to become more, more pleasing to the world around us. We will miss the opportunity of actually sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. And instead, we will be offering the gospel of it feels good. We have this picture of Jesus standing on the mountain in all of his glory to remind us that the suffering is worth it. That in him we can find the strength to endure whatever comes ahead of us. That in him we find that strength to overcome. That was his promise, right? In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And just as Jesus has overcome the world, when we walk in his steps, when we allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us, we too become overcomers. Not that we're able to stop the suffering of the persecution, but that in the face of that, we will stand firm and bring honor and glory to our Lord and reveal the kingdom to a world that so desperately needs that hope. Are you ready to walk the path of suffering? Are you ready to 
hold fast, even when everything around you is going the opposite direction. Are you ready to endure? Not because you are strong. Not because you have the internal fortitude to stand fast. Because you have your eye on the Savior. You are walking in the power of His Spirit to face whatever comes your way for His glory and for the building of His kingdom in this world. Lord Jesus, some way it feels wrong to say thank you for suffering. And yet, Lord, we know that it is often through our suffering, our sacrifice, that your character is refined in us. And that the light of your truth, the light of your righteousness shines through us into the lives of other people around us. So Lord, we put ourselves in your hands. As we see the coming persecution that we will face in this world, as the pressures around us to, to conform, to, uh, to change our message, to to adjust our morals, to, to hold different priorities as those become stronger and stronger. We fix our eyes on you, knowing that you will complete in us all that you have begun. Lord, I pray for those that are here this morning who have yet to make that commitment. Those that have, have yet had an opportunity to count the cost and, and this message of suffering, of a path of, of suffering is shaking them, Lord. Father, I pray that you would reveal your glory to them. that they would know your presence, that they would see you in all of your beauty and all of your truth. And they would put aside their fears, they would put aside their uncertainties. And they would fully surrender themselves to you, Lord, for, for those that have been followers of yours for so long and have lived in this comfortable part of the world where, where there has been such little cost, and the thought of persecution, the thought of suffering, shakes them. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself in all of your glory your presence would be apparent to them. And in that, in that blinding light, 
all of those uncertainties would be burned away like so much morning mist. And they would be they would be found and they would be they would be centered and anchored in you. Knowing your faithfulness. Knowing your power. Lord, would we be a people who would be able to praise you on the mountain and to thank you in the valley. And in that, that we would be a light to shine in this dark world. Let it be, let it be.